In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, Lord, for all the blessings that you have given us today. We thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be called your children, for knowing the truth and learning about you, for your revelation in your life and in your church and in everything that we do. Please, Lord, bless this meeting and bless every single thing that we do in our life. Let everything be done for the glory of your holy name through the intercessions of St. Mary, St. Athanasius, St. Peter, St. Paul, and all your saints here as we say, thank you, our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil and in Christ Jesus our Lord. For thy kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, I'm just going to go down the list of questions um, as I receive them. Uh, the first question is, do we have a record of when the monasticism of women started? We don't have a clear um, date for that, but we know that uh, St. Anthony was the most profound uh, monk of his time, and he really is the one that started the movement around the third century. Uh, during that time, the, the life of celibacy in general has always been um, known in the Christian world. So from the time of St. Paul, he was celibate. You know, St. John was also celibate. But monastic life is a bit different than just leading a celibate life. Um, monasticism revolves around three vows. The first vow is the vow of obedience. Um, then the vow of poverty, and then the vow of celibacy. And that becomes more of a very distinct lifestyle uh, in the church. Um, and this, these vows are, could be taken even outside of the monastic order. Uh, someone by himself could be uh, taking these vows. Um, for example, we know that uh, St. Mina, um, of Egypt uh, took the vow of, of celibacy, uh, but he was not part of a monastic order. So the same applies to women in general. Uh, they could have made that vow of celibacy, poverty, and obedience. Um, and these were really the three uh, temptations as well that we are all faced with, you know, and these are the three temptations that Christ was faced with as well. So but to, you know, to give you the short answer, I, I'm not aware of a specific date, but uh, I would assume that it probably started around the same time, the third century or so, um, as, as more and more monks um, took these vows and, and participated in the order of monastic life. I'm sure that women as well. We have many stories in the Synexarium that talk about saintly women that wanted to be monks and decided to join a monastery uh, and, you know, disguise themselves in order to, um, to be part of a, a monastic male uh, monastery, for example. Um, and we know, we know a lot of their stories, but whether they were the first ones or not, um, we also know of stories of virgins that also decided to just stay a virgin and stay uh, within their father's house or in a castle uh, they didn't join a specific order, but uh, they definitely led a monastic life, such as St. Damiana, for example. Um, so these are many stories uh, that we know of, of women in, um, in a monastic order. Please, at any time, if anyone has a follow-up question or comments, please, um, please post it uh, in the chat group, and uh, we'll, I'll try to answer them as well. Um, Second question, uh, I think this was something very specific, but I don't know if uh, I'll be able to answer it. It says, last Tuesday, um, as your reverence were answering the question about how to instruct our kids, you said that whether we choose to explain the reasons why we ask our kids to do something or not, the most important factor that matters is that our kids trust us and know that we have their best interest in mind in order for them to obey us. Now, how do you build this kind of trust between you and your children? So uh, again, I'm not quite sure what the first reference 
was uh, all about. But just uh, the second part of that um, of that statement. But how do you build this kind of trust between you and your children? Um, trust in general is built over time based on behavior. Um, when we promise our children certain things and we follow through, that builds trust. But children, as they are from the second they are born, their whole relationship with their parents is based on trust. Um, they don't have to say flat out, I trust you. But from the second they're born, you know, the parents are the ones that take care of all of their needs. Uh, they take care of, you know, all of their food and their cleanliness. They take care of their sleep. They take care of their safety. They are protectors. So as long as the parents are, you know, pretty much doing their role from day one, there's, there's a great foundation of trust that's there. Sadly, as time goes by and children become more aware of, of who their parents are, they start having a bit of mistrust. So it's not about building trust. The trust is, is there from day one, is that afterwards, the parents, sadly, can add to this mistrust where they see the parents promise something but not fulfill it. Oh, if, if you finish your homework, I'll give you, I don't know, ice cream. And then the kids would finish their homework and then the parent decides, no, uh, it's too late for ice cream or something like that. That's when you start seeing cracks of that trust. Um, it's never done by the children. It's most likely done by the adults. Or they see, um, you know, uh, their parents act one way in the church and act differently at home. That also adds a level of mistrust, you know, a level of unauthentic, uh, you know, relationship. You know, who are you? Are you the person that everybody sees in the church or are you the person that I see at home? Uh, so again, that, that's usually not done by the children. That's usually done by the adults. Or things like, you know, parenting methodology where the parents would uh, instruct their children, for example, to pray and to read the Bible and to go to church. And the parents themselves don't pray and don't read the Bible and don't go to church sometimes. Sadly, that's also true. And that actually builds a lot of mistrust in a sense of if you think so highly of prayer and you're asking me and you're, some parents would even punish their children if they don't pray. Why are you not praying? Again, we're sending mixed signals to our children and therefore there's a layer of um, mistrust that's innate in all of these actions. So I think, I think the better question is how do we maintain the trust between us and our children? Um, because trust is built from day one, um, but like I said, sadly over time, parents uh, through their actions and their attributes start creating a layer of mistrust between them and their children. But at the same time, you know, let us not lose hope. Uh, our children are like angels. They are very forgiving and they forget a lot of our mistakes. So if we do fall in any of these um, sins or, or bad behavior, let us not lose hope. If we go back to our children and change our ways and we start praying to that to, and praying together and reading the Bible together and attending church together and being truly authentic and be, being truly honest in our behavior at home and at church and maintaining our promise and being, you know, a role model and example, they, you know, given their 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 beautiful attributes, their beautiful angelic attributes they come back and they start trusting us again. And um, they rarely, you know, hold something like against us, especially if they're too young, they, they won't remember. So let us continue, you know, to strive to be Christ-like even as parents and never think for once that we are above our children. You know, um, Christ says, unless you become like little children, you by no means will inherit the kingdom of heaven. So actually, they are the ones that are above us. They are the ones that have higher spiritual level than us. They are the ones that are angels and are not struggling with sin. We are the ones that have left, you know, the grace of God and struggling with sin. 
So let us look at our own children as something that we aspire to become rather than people that we need to rule over. Um, let us humble ourselves as parents. If we make mistakes, let us go and apologize to our children and ask for, for their forgiveness. You will be held at a very high esteem by your child if you make a mistake, no matter what the mistake is, and you go to them and you apologize to them and you ask for them to forgive you. Um, then they will really, truly love you and build trust and build you know, intimacy between, um, between you and them. And that's really very important at a very young age that we need to build. We need to build that level of intimacy and strength and, and great foundation that, you know, we're all humans. And as the years pass by, if I do not become like a little child, then I have, you know, forgotten what Christ has told his disciples uh, when they were arguing, you know, who's the greatest among them? You know, he took a child and he looked at the child and said, unless you become like little children, you by no means inherit the kingdom of heaven. Um, again, any, if there's any questions or concerns about um, this one, please just let me know. Um, otherwise, I'll just uh, keep uh, answering questions. Um, the third question here is, how can I have a general grasp of the history of the church and the ecumenical councils? I read a few parts here and there from the church's history and tried to memorize a little, but I keep forgetting and this is bothering me. Do you recommend any books or timelines? Also, do you have any tips for me to memorize? Um, I guess I wonder why you need to memorize. Um, it's important that we know our church history. It's important that we know the ecumenical councils to understand more about our own belief and our own theology. But there's really no need to memorize dates, you know, uh, unless, unless you're writing <laughs> a test for, uh, you know, a church history test. So I don't know why you would need to memorize. There's many books out there. Um, I'm just looking at my own library for books. Um, there was a great book called Ecclesiastical History. Um, I just got it from my library. I don't know if you can see it or not. Um, I don't think you can see it. It's called Ecclesiastical History. And this is a beautiful uh, unbridged book. Uh, this is actually written by Eusebius. Um, and he was, um, you know, a Jewish um, historian. I like to read history books of the Christian church from a non-Christian perspective and compare it to our Christian perspective to see how close, um, how close, you know, history, you know, can be compared. And because historians, true historians should be, you know, non-denominational, they should not have any bias towards um, any specific religion. They are there to try to document facts and dates and what actually took place. Usually they're fairly accurate. Um, any historians that are, you know, that has a specific background by default, they'll have a bias towards that background in their uh, writings. But there's many books, uh, Josephus as well, a Jewish, a Jewish historian, uh, also documents a lot of things about um, the early church and Christianity. We as well in our church, um, there's a couple of books that, um, that are also written by um, Father, let me get the name right. Um, I'm just again looking in my library. There's a couple of good books about the early church history, um, but they were written in Arabic. Um, um, but we know, for example, His Grace um, Bishop Gregory of Blessed Memory, Gregorius of uh, Blessed Memory in Egypt wrote many books about the church history as well. I think most of them have been translated by now. If not, if someone is really interested, I could uh, try to help them read some of them that are written in Arabic. So we have fairly good, uh, you know, 
um, books of the Christian history. But I would say the most important thing that we need to understand about the church history is really the three ecumenical councils. These are the ones that we believe in. These are the ones that shaped uh, Christianity in, you know, in, in the universal uh, world. Uh, these are the ones that we really need to understand. I, I wouldn't worry too much about trying to memorize exact dates. Um, but again, depends on the context. If you are writing a church history exam, then yes, of course, you need to memorize exact dates. But if it's just for your own knowledge, um, you know, you just need to understand what happened in the first three ecumenical councils. And what's really the comparative theology between us and, you know, the Eastern Orthodox Church, us and the Catholic Church, us and the Protestant Church, um, all the major religions, us and the Jewish religion, us and Islam. These are really the major, um, you know, religions that we need to uh, know the difference, just so we can know our own orthodoxy better. And if you know uh, the differences, the theological differences between all these ones that I just mentioned, um, that's a better thing to know from the church history than to actually memorize exact dates. Um, in Matthew 6, 7, our Lord warned his disciples from the vain repetition of prayer. Someone told me before that the fact that we repeat, Lord have mercy, so much in prayer means that we are disobeying God's words in, his, in this verse. What do you think? Um, we don't normally take any specific verse and, and base a whole belief on it. We take a lot of collective verses. Uh, you know, also Christ says, pray without ceasing. Uh, or in the Bible, sorry, it says, pray without ceasing. And everything, give, give thanks. Rejoice always. So there's many things that we do perpetually all the time. Um, so we, we don't take just one verse and say, you know, um, we, we just have vain repetitions. If you think about it, there's not a single um, liturgy that is a repeat of another liturgy. There's always something different. So every liturgy, uh, if it's a weekday liturgy, it's a different liturgy because it, the, you know, the, the readings are based on the Synexarian. If it's a Sunday liturgy, um, every Sunday is different than the previous Sunday because it has its own curriculum as well. Maybe one day I'll, I'll explain all of how the readings are all split. So you'll never have the same synexarium. You'll never have the same readings. We have close to 69 sets of readings that keep on changing uh, during the weekday liturgies, uh, depending if the synexarium uh, is uh, for a martyr or for a patriarch or for a prophet. Um, the Sunday liturgies, like I said, it, you know, the whole Coptic calendar is split into three categories. Um, and again, you'll never find that the same readings are, are the same. Um, even from one year to another year, if you would say that, okay, well, maybe one year, you know, first week of, you know, the first month of the Coptic year two, for example, it repeats for the following year, you'll probably never hear the same sermon twice. Um, so even though from the outside it might seem that we are repeating certain things, but if you dig deep into it, we're actually not. Uh, there's a, a great difference between how we pray the liturgies um, and even, even the Lord have mercies. You know, we're reminding ourselves of the lashes that Christ took uh, for our salvation um, and, uh, and the pain that he endured. And we also believe in lots of continuous uh, prayers, you know, like, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner, that I repeat. Uh, all these prayers are really meant not to be said in vain, but as much as to be repeated so your subconscious at a certain point has it memorized and engraved that even when you are not really praying, your subconscious is really praying. You know, we know stories of Pope Corollus VI of blessed memory, where, you know, one time they took him to the hospital and they had to put him under, can't remember the operation, but subconsciously he was repeating the whole liturgy from start to end. You know, again, you know, someone of his uh, stature didn't get to that level 
unless he was practicing and praying liturgies daily. So his subcon it's engraved in his subconscious that even if he's not fully awake, his subconscious is praying. And that's ultimately just to satisfy that verse that says pray without ceasing. So I don't think, I think if, if, you're, if you're not mindful of what you're saying and you're just repeating without knowing what you're doing, that would be vain. And I think that was really addressed to the Jewish people uh, at that time, that there were just many repetitions and they didn't quite understand and they didn't know what they were saying. So as long as you understand what you're saying and you understand why I'm saying it and even understand why I am repeating these um, uh, repeating these uh, verses or these uh, prayers, then it's not in vain, you know, to train your subconscious to constantly be praying, to constantly being saying the, the you know, the Lord's prayer or the Jesus prayer, or to even be praying the Psalms. All these things are to protect yourself and to allow your subconscious to really have all of these instilled in, in you. So whenever you are tempted with any temptation, your subconscious kicks in. And of course that helps with, you know, things like dreams. You won't dream of bad things if you're constantly in prayer mode and you're constantly saying the Jesus prayer or constantly listening to, you know, songs. Um, all these things really impact, you know, our, our life. So I, I don't I don't agree that this um, this verse applies to what we are doing because we actually truly understand the importance of you know pray without ceasing for example. Um, in Philippians three thirteen to fourteen, Saint Paul says, "One thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press." Was the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I do understand that it is important for us to not dwell too much on our past so we wouldn't discourage, be discouraged by our failures nor puffed up by our successes. But does this mean that we should not be thinking? That we should not be thinking, how can I have uh, sorry, just the thing cut off. But does this mean that we should not be thinking? Sorry, just uh, the question is in Excel. And um, here we go. Uh, but our past or evaluation, our lives to see whether we are, okay. So the question is, um, but does this mean that we should not be thinking about our past at all or evaluating our lives to see whether we are growing or not at all? Um, so we certainly should be evaluating um, our actions um, and we should definitely be giving an account to our, you know, um, for for our repentance and confession. That's something that we will have to do on Judgment Day. That we will give an account for every action that I took. So uh, that, that's definitely we should constantly be doing that. But I think Saint Paul here was talking about how I don't look at my past achievements but I forget those things that which are behind me and always continue to grow and always continue to learn. Um, I think the most important thing is to live the moment. Sometimes uh, we worry too much about our future and sometimes we dwell too much in our past and we are really not living the moment. And here, it, it's always a question of balance. You know, it's not a question of, you know, either or. It's not a binary answer. It's not like, should I, you know, focus on my past, focus on my future, or, or live the present. I think there's a balance. You know, I should remember the past and see how God has protected me and covered me and, and done great things for me to lead me to be thankful for what, God has done in my life. 
And I should not worry about the future because God has taken care of the past and will take care of the future. And I should be really happy in the present and enjoy the moment and live with God. So I will take my past and focus on God and I will take my future and focus on God and I will take my present and focus on God. In all aspects, I'm focusing on God. Yes, I'm also focusing on my actions and deeds and, and giving account and you know trying to really fully repent of my actions. But sometimes we dwell too much, I, I find, in all of these things, and I become very self-centric. You know, we all aspire to be God-centric. The church, everything that we do is God-centric. Even how we position ourselves in the church and where we're facing in the church, we're not facing each other. We're not, it's not a social gathering and facing each other. We're facing one focal point, which is the altar and Christ on the altar. So we're definitely God-centric in our worship. And if our lives are God-centric, and if we are truly praying, let it, let it be your will, not my will, then I, I cannot be overly consumed by my past. You know, I have to have a balance where I'm focusing enough on my past to, to repent and to confess and to lead a, a good life. Uh, I should not worry about my future, but definitely um, live more in the present moment. Yes, we have a question. So probably the best analogy I heard about that is uh, it's like the rear view mirror while drive. So you move it forward, but you still have need to still uh, look back sometimes, but you cannot look at the mirror, rear view mirror all the time. Mm. Um, also, there's a, a, we have a question from our viewers on YouTube. If we are accountable for our children in service and our own children and they stray, what should we do if they refuse to hear the truth? So my question is how old is your child, first of all? Okay, I'll wait for the answer. Um, well, uh, well, let's it's talk about the ch children we serve in service. So it's a big difference. It's a, and the question I ask about the ages, it's, it's a very uh, important question. There's a difference if a child that's five years old that you know, pretty much uh, is within my house and within my uh, parenting uh, world and you know, I'm controlling every factor and they go astray, then I wonder why, why did they go astray? And most likely it's my fault that they went astray because there's, there's no outside factors. You know, pretty much the outside factors are very limited when they're young. If they are adult, uh, college age or whatever, at a certain point, it's no longer about me. It's, it's about their decision. You know, they have free will. God has created all of us with free will. So just because I teach them the right things and just because I, you know, bring them to church and just because I, I lead a godly life and all the factors are pointing in the right direction, that does not mean there's like a guarantee that they will continue, you know, following that path. They have free will. They will make a choice. But at a certain point, the parent has to trust that the foundation has been laid in their parenting all throughout the years. That by the time they get to college, even if they go astray, that foundation does not disappear overnight. And God works in people in many, many ways. You know, like we know many stories, you know, of like St. Augustine's mother, for example. St. Augustine got baptized when he was very old, like he was 30 years old. You know, and he did not lead a godly life up until that point. And he definitely went astray. But because the mother has put good foundation in her son, and through her prayers, he came back and, be, you know, he became a bishop, and he became St. Augustine. So I wouldn't worry too much about whether my child is going astray or not. I, I worry I should focus more on if they're young, to protect them and to build a good foundation. If they're old, to understand what is my role at that age, when they're like, let's say 19, 20, 21. My role as a, a parent is, as a, is, has transformed into more of a, an advisor, a friend, uh, someone that cares about them, that would pray for them. My role is not just, you know, I am the father figure that you have to obey me anymore. You know, if, if, you know, if we don't obey, our heavenly father, why would they obey our earthly father? So just think about that for a second, you know, they have free will and we have free will. And 
I went astray when I was their age. I went, you know, I'm not perfect. So why would I assume that my child should be perfect? That, that's, uh, that could be a bit of my own pride if I think so highly of my parenting style or something that no matter what, like that's it, they're, sent, they're, they're set for sainthood because I'm their father or I'm their mother. No, they will go up and they will go down and they will fall and, you know, but by the grace of God, through, you know, all of the things that I've done as a father, as a mother in their young age and the foundation that's put and through the protection of God and the, and the prayers of, of, you know, the priests and the deacons and the, and, you know, their friends and everyone, that would point them in the right direction. I hope that I answered that question. Please let me know if, if you'd like to clarify anything or if you have a follow-up question. How can I have a good balance between my own spiritual discipline, especially reading and my, ser and my service? I love both very much, but I do not know what would be a good balance. So they, again, I think there's a, a, an embedded fallacy in that question in the sense of I'm either going to pick my spiritual discipline or I'm going to pick my service. But that's a fallacy. That's wrong. It's not, it's not a binary thing. You know, it's actually, they're, they're so intertwined. You know, my own spirituality, when I focus on reading, for example, and I focus on, you know, prayer or fasting, I'm doing this not just for my own sake, but I'm doing this also for the service that I'm leading. So I'm, I'm, I'm you know, purifying myself so I, could, so I could be pure for the service. I pray so God could work in my life and through my life, he can work through the service. Um, I fast so I could have self-discipline, so I can lead a good, righteous, godly life. So in my service, my words would have more of an impact on individuals. So, and I serve because I love God and I see him, you know, giving me many blessings. So the two are intertwined. I can't split them. I can't say, okay, today I'm going to pray and read the Bible and just have my own alone time. And, uh, you know, that's it. It's separate from service. No, I, all of this God uses to improve my service. And when I see God working in my service, that would push me to get closer to him more. And when I feel his presence more, I want to serve more. So it's more of a circular thing. Now, of course, along the way, Every now and then, each one of us, especially if you are consecrating your life to God, we all need a bit of uh, alone time or a contemplation time or, or more of, I call it like, you know, regeneration or not regeneration, but rejuvenation, sorry, rejuvenation time, where if I'm physically tired, I need to be, you know, let's say take 10 days or, or two weeks in the monastery to rejuvenate my spirituality so I have more to give. You know, if I am empty spiritually, then I have nothing to give. I can't give. If I'm not full spiritually, I cannot give anybody. So every now and then, at least in my experience, you feel that you're so exhausted sometimes that you need to get, you know, more of a, a rejuvenation of spirituality where you feel like I'm drained. Now I need to be full again. And that needs for me to focus more on my own spirituality. So in order for me to better serve people. Yes, Shreve, sorry. And um, we have a follow-up from uh, the question about uh, if, uh, if our children go astray. Um, are we not accountable uh, before God uh, for them? Like, just like Eli, he was accountable for, uh, for his sons going astray. So up until a certain age, we are accountable. But after a certain age, we are not. Um, when we baptize someone, like a baby, for example, we tell the parents, this child is no longer yours. This child belongs to the church. We are lending this child to you to take care of him and to raise him or her in a good Christian life. But once they become an adult, let's say 18, 19 years old, we are not fully accountable for all their actions. We cannot. But 
at the same time, I still have a role to play, even if I'm not accountable for their actions. I, I still need to pray for them. I still need to be a good advisor for them. I still need to rebuke them if I see something that they're doing you know, wrong, especially if I know about it. So I definitely have a role to play, but I don't have that accountability for their actions. You know, otherwise, you know, how can we ever stand on judgment day if we're accountable for, for free will that God has given to his children? You know, I, we can pray for God to take away their free will, so I don't have to worry about it, but that's not going to happen. They have free will. Um, you, like, again, as a good steward, as long as we've been faithful, to the best of our abilities, especially with raising our children. At a certain point, they have to make their own choices and they have to lead their own life. And like I said, even though I'm not fully accountable after a certain age, I still have a very important role to play. And, you know, never underestimate the prayer of a parent. You know, it can change the course of their children's lives just because they pray, you know, for them and just because they fast for them and they just because they ask priests and bishops and other people to pray for them all these things you know like Pope Corley says prayer is the most powerful thing because it it you know it has an impact on God that changes the course of people's lives so hopefully that answered that question seems like there's <laughs> a lot of follow-up questions especially on that topic it's just one person okay um, how can I overcome boredom in my spiritual life? Uh, I don't know how you could ever be bored <laughs> in your spiritual life. There's so many things happening. Um, if you are a monk <laughs> and you are bored of your uh, routine, you know, um, there's a story about an angel appearing to St. Anthony and teaching him how to braid baskets when he felt bored. And he told them, you know, braid some, and then you get up and pray some, and then you go sell the baskets, and then you come back again and pray some more and so forth. But if you are um, not a monk, I don't know how you could ever be bored in your spirituality. Because if you think about it, you know, I pray, and I read my Bible and I go to church and I repent and I confess and I serve. All these things are very dynamic. I don't see how any, any of it could be mundane. You know, when I stand, I pray, like I truly pray, not like repeat words. When I stand there and I really talk to God, I don't know how that could be boring. You know, if I'm talking to my best friend that I loved, that I, you know, have seen how amazing he is to me. How can I ever say I'm bored talking to him? You know, think of all of your friends. Think of your best friend. You know, if God can be like your best friend that knows you inside out, that you've, you know, you spend years and you've experienced his love. I don't know how can that be boring? You know, reading the Bible and, and, and God un unveiling what the words really mean in your life and unveiling your sins so you can purify yourself. And that's because he loves us. And the more I repent, the more he forgives. And the more he forgives, the more I love him more. And the more I, you know, I feel his love, I want to repent more. I don't know how that could be boring. Uh, when I serve his children and I learn from service how amazing his children are and how they are the ones that are actually teaching me, not the other way around. And I can be in the forefront of seeing people's lives change for the better when they come and they taste and they see what God is all about. And, and for someone that could be going astray and now all of a sudden, you know, that person is protected in, you know, in, in the church. I don't know how that could be boring. So I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to and my spiritual life could be boring, but I can assure you if you lead a very healthy spiritual life in your prayers and in your Bible reading and in your fasting and in serving other people and 
you know, have a great relationship with your father of confession and repenting and confessing. Um, there's never a dull moment, <laughs> I can assure you, in your spirituality. Um, um, in Ephesians 6, 10 to 18, St. Paul speaks about the armor of God. How can we practically put on each of the parts of that armor so we would be able to fight against temptation? Uh, so each part of the armor, I don't remember all of them. Uh, it's the helmet. Um, the, you know, there's righteousness. There's truth. There is uh, the armor. There's for something for the head, something for the for the breastplate, um, the the something for your foot. In general, the more I focus on my spiritual routine, the best way to really fight, to really really fight against temptation, is to hold on to our spiritual routine. If you don't know what a spiritual routine is, then you need to go and ask your father of confession about a spiritual routine or a spiritual canon that you need to follow. And the more uh, faithful I am to that spiritual routine, the more I am protected. So I'll give you an example. If my spiritual routine is to pray in the Agbeya in the morning, let's say the first hour, and to pray in the Agbeya at night, uh, the 11th hour, uh, that becomes my daily spiritual routine. And to read the Bible, let's say a chapter every day, that becomes my daily spiritual routine. I pray in the morning, I pray in the evening, and I read my Bible. Uh, my weekly spiritual routine would be come to church uh, and take communion. My monthly spiritual routine would be to confess. If I'm faithful to that spiritual routine that my father of confession has asked me to follow, and I'm you know, I am praying, you know, in the morning and in the evening, and I'm reading the Bible, and I'm taking communion, and I'm confessing on a regular basis. That is really the strongest armor that we have, because I'm surrounding my whole day within God's realm or God's circle, you know, and I'm being obedient. So the devil, when he comes and fights us, we know his weapons. His weapons are pride. His weapons are lack of love, and his weapons are um, uh, anything that goes against the unity of the church. So whenever I'm faced with pride, I attack pride by humility. When I'm faced with lack of love or anger or hatred by people, I attack it with love. Whenever I'm faced with anything that breaks people apart and breaks families apart, whatever, I fight it with unity. So hum humility and love and working towards unity in everything that we do are really the weapons that we have. You know, and how do I fight again? How do I become humble? And how do I become more loving? And how do I become working towards unifying myself and all of that that's the word of god the word of god is what teaches me about love and humility and unity you know in the first early church in the book of acts i can't remember i counted it once there were so many times they said in the book of acts that they've done everything in one accord in one accord so this unity is our fight against the devil so how do I apply this unity in my daily life? I have to be united with myself. I have to not have division within myself. What causes division within me is really sin. When I'm divided, one part of me wants to do bad, the other part wants to do good. So I'm divided. I'm not one anymore. So I need to repent and confess to be, un to be one again. So when Christ came on earth, he unified us and him and unified us with other people, and unified us with ourselves. He did three things. He unified God with us, unified us with other people, and unified us with ourselves. And each one of these things, if we can do it, that, that's a great armor against the devil. If I'm fully unified within myself, that means I constantly repent and confess, and I, I am who I am, whether 
in my private home or in front of people, I'm, I'm one. I'm not two, three different people. If I'm unified with other people as well, I have no conflicts. I seek people to, um, to unify with me. If I make a mistake, I humbly apologize and I ask for their forgiveness. Then I'm unified with other people. And those two things ultimately unify me with God. If I, there's no barriers between me and God, there's no sin between me and God, that I'm you know, partaking in his body and his blood, I, I'm fully unified with God. So that's one aspect. So unification in general is a big fight against the devil. Think of it. Anything that happens from the devil will split things, will either split you uh, between you and yourself. You'd be like an internal struggle, split you between other people in a, in a, course in a family that would be like the husband and wife there's a split uh and ultimately split us from god where he wants us away from god so we fight all of that with being unified but the tools to get full unification with all of these things is love and humility love and humility these are our weapons love and humility you know i remember um when i first start serving in the church there was a lot of people that came and they were really angry for whatever reason, lots of different reasons. And, um, and they just wanted, just, they were angry. They wanted certain things to be done. And if I would have, you know, faced all this anger and all this division in like more anger and more hatred, we wouldn't have gone anyway, anywhere. But you'd be surprised how often we can win someone over by our love and by humility. The more I humble myself, I, I break the person's anger without, without them knowing. They could be yelling and screaming and just me being humble and, and staying silent and really respecting them and being polite. And if I made a mistake, I apologize. I'm very sorry. I don't mean to upset you you'd be very surprised how much all that anger would just disappear. That devil of anger would just vanish in front of your eyes. The person can't, would not stand humility. Devil cannot stand humility. He wants you to fight and he wants you to fight with anger. And if you say no, and if there's any mistake that I've done, I'm very sorry and I'm not perfect and please pray for me. I'm working on myself through the grace of God you'd be surprised how many people with lots of anger would just, just, they have nothing else to say. What else are you going to say to someone if they are already putting themselves down? So that's humility. Um, if you fight with love when someone really is, you know, backbiting and gossiping against you, and really, you know that they're talking really bad things about you, but you still maintain your course and you still check up on them and you still reach out to them and you still show them love. After a while, they, they, they have nowhere to go. They become ashamed of their actions. They might not even tell you, but you'll see it that their actions all of a sudden will stop. Um, all of a sudden they'll come back. All of a sudden your love would overpower them no matter how much they hate you. You constantly give love and they, again, the devil of hatred cannot exist when someone is offering love. And that's what we've learned from Christ. Christ came on earth and showed us true love and true humility. And we, as his children, these have become our weapons, our attributes, that we have the love of Christ in our hearts and we have humility. Um, and these are really our greatest weapons uh, against against the devil. Um, what are some practical practices to control anger? I feel like I've already answered this question last time. <laughs> Too many angry people. What's going on? St. John Climacus says that uh, one of the ways to control your anger is to stay silent. Just stay silent. Um, and I can't remember if it was St. John Chrysostom or maybe another father 
that says you quiet your your tongue so your heart can speak to God and you quiet your heart so God can speak to you. Again, that's in the middle of anger. So I would start by not talking, <laughs> speaking to God, then quiet your heart so God can speak to you. And I would add just maybe one or two other things. Uh, assess what are your triggers? Assess what are your triggers? What are the triggers that caused you to be angry? And if you find a pattern, you know, then assess or foreshadow what might happen as these triggers are taking place. So I think last time I told you, like some people can get very angry if they don't sleep and they don't eat, for example. If for whatever reason they didn't sleep enough and they didn't eat well enough, they are on edge. So let's say I did assess myself and I realized that every time I was really, really angry was when you know I was really hungry and I was really tired. And then all of a sudden, okay, I realized that about myself. Now I'm, I'm leading a normal life. And then all of a sudden I'm really hungry and I'm really tired. Know that you will get angry. So either take yourself away from any situation or go get some rest <laughs> or grab a sandwich, like something, something to compensate for those trigger points. But there's usually trigger points, especially if we were talking about real anger. We're not just talking about someone just, you know, screamed because I don't know, he hit a wall, you know, a wall or something. Like something that, that just is really, truly, you know, anger. Um, once you realize, like I said, once you realize those trigger points, then as they happen, you will see them combat the trigger points and combat, okay, yeah, I cannot go without sleep and without food for X amount of hours. I know myself, I'm just going to get angry. I need to go get some rest. And, and put, you know, these things in your mind to be able to tell people like, you know, I, I, you might not, you don't need to tell them I'm going to get angry. Just tell them I really do need to sleep right now, or I really need to go and eat something right now. And, and that's, that's, that's like half of the battle right there. If you know what's going to trigger it and you fight it, then, then you're on your way. So, like I said, St. John Climacus said, keep your silence. I believe it was St. John Chrysostom that says, Quiet your tongue so your heart can speak to God and then quiet your heart so God can speak to you. And then finally, just my own kind of uh, thought about this is understand your trigger points. And once you realize that you're going to go through these trigger points, either isolate yourself and combat those trigger points or don't allow yourself to actually go through those trigger points. So if, I know I need my sleep, I need to eat or whatever those trigger points are. Um, how can I have self-control in my life, especially over the physical passions? Um, so self-control is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Um, a lot of times, especially with like lust, I'm assuming that they're referring to lust here. Yeah. Um, don't focus on the sin. Focus on the, you know, how you can protect yourself against sin by introducing more of the grace of God in your life. So if you focus on the sin and say, okay, you know what, I'm not going to, I'm not going to watch this movie or I'm not going to go to this place or I'm not going to whatever, you're still focusing on the sin. Rather shift your focus on God. And saying, you know what, I need to pray more. I need to read my Bible more. I need to confess more. I need to uh, go to church more. The more I push towards the light and get closer to God, the more by default, as the light enters my life, it pushes away the darkness. But if I keep focusing on the sin and not think of, of God, then more I will fall into it. It's like someone riding a bike and constantly looking downward. They will fall. But if you look up when you're riding a bike, you'll go straight. Um, and the more I focus on the sin without the grace of God, the more I, I intuitively think that I will be able to overcome it. It's me. It's all about me. If I could just do this and this and this, I will overcome sin. 
And that's, again, that's a fallacy. It doesn't, that's not how it works. Yes, I need to, of course, be wise and I need to eliminate things that pull me towards the sin, of course. That's, that's not something what we're discussing. But it's not because I'm doing this that I will be able to overcome sin. No. God is the only one that can overcome this sin. God, and through his grace in my life, is the only thing that can make me have the strength to overcome sin. And lead a life where I'm constantly trying to introduce God in everything in my life. Because by default, if God is in my life, then that light, the grace of God, pushes away all this darkness. And then I no longer need to fight against the sin. I just need to be with God. Think of it as, you know, a child that sees, you know, uh, a big gigantic guy coming to attack him. You know, he's going to say, okay, you know what? I'm going to try to go around this guy. I'm going to run from this guy. I'm going to hide from this guy. Or he can just say, you know what? I'm going to go to my dad who is like a hundred times bigger than him and just behind, hide behind him. <laughs> then I'm not worried anymore. That's what we need to aspire to do. Run away from sin, hide behind God and say, you take care of it. That's not me. I, I can't. Because realistically speaking, if I'm fighting against sin directly without the grace of God, it's a lose-lose situation. And I, I, like, I, I will explain it in a very simple terms. Who am I fighting against? I'm fighting against the devil. Okay. Is the devil human? No. He is a fallen angel. So he's already a lot more advanced because he doesn't have a physical body that's draining him, you know, so, and he has all kinds of knowledge and wisdom and power as an angel. So I'm already fighting a being that is far stronger than me. How many years of experience does he have fighting humans? Like, like, I don't know, billions, <laughs> billions of people he has, he have fought in the past, you know, thousands and thousands of years fighting. Who did he fight? Oh, he fought like, you know, St. Moses the Black. <laughs> he fought, you know, the greatest saints of, you know, modern history. So I'm all of a sudden going to come and defeat him, kill by myself, like again. So I don't have the experience. I don't have the stature. I don't have even the knowledge. So it would be very prideful of me. It's almost like hubris of me to feel like, no, 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 I, I, will, I will defeat this devil by myself. I will lose. There's no discussion. But rather, if I say, you know what? I will run to my dad. I will run to my heavenly father and he will protect me from all this danger and I will hide, hide behind him. And then if I do fall into sin, I need to rise up quickly. You know, there's a nice verse that says, do not rejoice over me, my enemy, for when I fall, I shall arise again. You know, if I fall into sin, it's because of my weakness and I need to get up and repent and confess. And if I have been given the ability to overcome sin, it's because of God's grace. And that's really the true meaning of humility, to know who I am. I'm a human that, you know, by my nature, I might fall into sin, but by God's grace, I could overcome sin. So let's focus on God's grace in my life and empower that and allow all of you know, the visitations of grace to come upon me by praying more, by reading the Bible more, by attending church more, by truly fasting, by truly repenting, by following my spiritual canons. All these things allow me to have this visitation of grace. And once I have this visitation of grace, then I can overcome any sin and any demon. You know, we even say just by the sign of the cross that reminds the devil of his shame and his defeat and how Christ, you know, beat him on the cross just by me making the sign of the cross through the grace of God can defeat any, uh, any enemy. Uh, I'm going to stop here. It's 930 now. Um, I hope that I answered all the questions that you've had so far. Uh, Sharif, you could inform uh, Buddha Matthias that we stopped at that last question. There's only three left on that list. So Hopefully I made some headway for him. Um, thank you so much for having me. Uh, any last minute questions or comments that you'd like me to answer before we say our prayers? Yeah, thank you, Abuna, for being with us today. Wonderful. Okay, let's pray. 
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Thank you, Lord, for such a blessed evening. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be in your presence, everything that we do. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to serve and to witness your works in people's lives. Let us all, Lord, grow closer to you and be filled with your grace and be filled with your peace and your joy that surpasses all understanding through the intercession of St. Mary and St. Paul and St. Athanasius. Here, so we say, thank you, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, the kingdom come. That will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us the daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not temptation, but give us an evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for us, kingdom and love, and the glory. Have a blessed evening, everyone. Take care.